Welcome. We're so glad that you're able to be with us as well. And uh, man, I'm so excited, you guys. I hope, I hope you had a fantastic week this past week. Uh, the weather was exceptional, so hopefully you got a chance to enjoy that. And uh, it was so fun being able to be together for Easter last week. So many of you were able to join us for that. And so I hope you and your family had a great Easter as well. Uh, but if you were here last Easter, if you happen to be here at this church, you might remember uh, that we actually said that this week we're going to be starting a brand new series. And so that's what we're doing this week. We're starting a brand new series. And what we said last week was this, is we said that this new series that we're going to be in, and actually the next three series that come after it. So you can kind of think about it this way. We said really kind of this next semester here at Grace Church at the Medina East Campus, we said that the series is really based on, and these next couple of series are really based on one kind of central idea and on one kind of central truth. And here it was. And again, if you were with us last week, you might remember this. But we said this series is built on the basic premise that Jesus is above all. So he said, this is kind of the guiding thought that we're centralizing the next several series on, is this idea that Jesus is above all. Now, of course, if you missed last week, what we did last week is we actually looked at a passage of the Bible. We looked at Colossians chapter 1. It actually teaches this very truth. And what you're going to see in Colossians chapter 1, and if you were here last week, what you saw, is the Bible's going to claim that Jesus is preeminent over all things, that Jesus is above all creation, things visible and invisible, things that we see and things that we do not see. All things were made in him, through him, by him, and for him. And Jesus is above all. And here's what we said. We said that is the claim that scripture makes about Jesus. We said that is the claim that Jesus made about himself. And that is the claim that disciples of Jesus throughout history have lived for and have died for. And so here's where we left last week, if you were here. Here's what we said. We said either that's true, either this claim is true, that Jesus is above all, or it's not. And we said if it's not true, if the the claim that Jesus is above all is not true, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, if if Jesus is not who the scripture says he is, if Jesus is not who the disciples lived and died for as they thought him to be throughout history, we said, well, then who cares, right? Who, Who cares about about following Jesus, who cares about anything that he said, who cares about you know, adopting his way of life. But here's what we said. We said, if it is true, if this statement is true, that Jesus is above all, we said, well, then the real question is not, um, do you want to put Jesus first in your life? We said, it's actually not the right question. If this is true, we said, here's the real issue. If this is true, either we live in line with this reality or we live out of alignment with what is true. We either live in alignment with what is true, that Jesus is first above all things, or we live out of alignment with that reality. And so what we said is we said that we wanna explore 
Uh, and in this next series, the next several series, we want to start connecting some dots. And we want to start to talk practically. And we want to say, so what would it look like in your life and my life, practically speaking, if we begin to align our lives with this truth? What would it look like? And we're just kind of exploring this idea. Some of you are followers of Jesus, and some of you are still investigating Jesus. But what we're saying is, practically speaking, what would it look like to live a life where Jesus is first? What would it look like to live a life where my life is in alignment with the preeminence of Jesus Christ, where he's first in all things? And so each week, we're going to be talking about something different that's really, really practical, but it's all centralized on this main idea. And so today, we're actually starting a series that's called Jesus Over My Time. And so this week, next week, and the following week, which is leading up to Love Medina, we're going to be processing through what does it look like to live out the firstness of Jesus Christ in my calendar, in my schedule, in my priorities, in the way that I spend my time. And like I said, we're going to get really practical about what that might look like in a life of a person who puts Jesus first. So as we start this kind of series off together... I actually want to invite you to grab your Bibles. I would love for you to open them with me. And the place we're going to go is actually Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please open and join me to Psalm chapter 1. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, uh, you can use one of the Bibles that's under the chairs. And you're going to find Psalm chapter 1 on page 431 in those Bibles. And we say this, uh, you guys, every week. And I love saying it. I'm actually excited to say it again. If you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have one. And you could just take that because we think it's so important that you have your own Bible. So, uh, so Psalms chapter one is where we're gonna go together. Now, um, anytime we open our Bibles, I always like to give a little bit of context. So let me just kind of help you understand what the book of Psalms is all about. So if you're someone who's maybe not familiar with the book of Psalms, one of the ways to think about the book of Psalms is that it is, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a poetic, an ancient poetic source of wisdom and a guide for worship. That's really one of the, the book of Psalms is an incredible book of the Bible. It is actually uh, thought to have been written primarily by King David, who was a king in Israel, but he's not the only one who contributed to the Psalms. There's other contributors who also wrote in the book of Psalms. But the book of Psalms is really, it's a beautiful poetic book that actually gives us a picture of the, of, of the life that God desires for us. And it's a book that contains incredible wisdom, and it also helps us navigate what it looks like to live a life where we worship God. And here's the cool thing about the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1, specifically, uh, commentators will say that it's not just the first in sequence. They'll say that Psalm chapter 1 is actually a summary of everything that you're going to find in the book of Psalms. That in a lot of ways, it's sort of like a consolidated version of the wisdom that's found all throughout the book of Psalms. And it's so rich and it's so deep and it's so meaningful that today we're actually probably just going to get through three verses of Psalm chapter one. Uh, like I said, it is so rich that I don't think we have time to even get past the first three verses. So let's just read those together. We're going to read Psalm chapter one, verses one, two, and three, and then we'll come back around and we'll start pulling some stuff out of this. Okay, so Psalm one, here's uh, what the psalmist says. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree who's planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. Okay, so there you have it, three very simple 
verses, but I want you just to observe with me right from the very beginning. The psalm opens up and it says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step. Blessed is the one. So in other words, right away, we are told that this psalm is about a person who is blessed, who is blessed. Now, the word blessed is actually a really important word in the book of Psalms. It's used several times in wisdom literature, which is what Psalms would be considered. It's used several, several times. And the word blessed, you could probably translate it this way. You could translate it happy. You could translate it rewarded. You could translate it fulfilled. So, So in other words, what this is telling us is that this is a person who has figured out how to optimize life. And the question that it's supposed to cause us to ask when we see this is it's supposed to cause us to to ask the question, how do I become a blessed person? How do I become a person that God would look at me and say, you're doing life well, you're doing life well. And my guess is that probably for most of us in this room, I can probably just speculate that if you're like me, I wanna be a person that God looks at me and says, you're doing life well, you're doing it well. And the Bible's gonna call that person blessed. So how does a person become blessed? That's the question that Psalms 1 wants us to ask. And then it helps provide an answer. And here's what it says. It's gonna say the blessed person does not do three things and they do two things. They do two things. So what do they not do? Well, right there in verse one, look what it says. Blessed is the one who does not, they do not walk in step with the wicked, They don't stand in the way that sinners take, and they don't sit in the company of mockers. Now, I'll tell you you what's fascinating is if you actually have an opportunity to spend some time really thinking about and meditating and studying this passage, you're actually gonna see that there's actually a very brilliant progression that the psalmist is using here. It's, It's actually a really fantastic economy of words. And this progression goes like this. This person doesn't walk in certain ways, and then you're gonna see they don't stand in certain ways, and then they don't sit in certain ways. Or if I could explain it this way, if you look at the original language, which uh, the Psalms was written in Hebrew, you're actually gonna see that the idea of walking, it says that the, the, the wise person, the blessed person, doesn't walk in a certain way. The word walk is actually a Hebrew word. It's the word halak, it's the word halak. And what it literally means is it literally means to journey, so it doesn't mean like, it doesn't mean physically walking, like if you were to go walk your dog. It means to journey. It means to go along with something or someone. I thought this was actually kind of illuminating. The first time the Hebrew word halak is used in the Bible, it's actually used in Genesis to describe the way a river flows. So it says the river walks a certain way. And so the, the idea is that this is supposed to cause us to ask the question, we're supposed to be thinking about what do you go along with? What do I kind of just go along with? What outside ideas and thoughts and influences do I just sort of go with the flow? And the Bible's gonna say, the blessed person is careful where they walk. They don't walk in certain ways. And not just that, and this, again, you guys, Psalms is brilliant. It's gonna say, not only, do they, not only are they careful where they walk, they're also careful where they stand. They don't stand in certain places. Now, the word stand is, again, it's a Hebrew word, and it literally means to linger. It means to linger. Um, Or we might, another, I mean, if you just wanna give another synonym to it, we might say loiter. Uh, If you see a sign that says no loitering, what does it mean? It means don't, you're not allowed to just stand around here. Right? You have, what does it mean to loiter? It means to subject yourself to a certain environment for a prolonged period of time. And so, so more than walking, this is where are you staying? I think the question that this is supposed to cause us to ask is as it relates to your time, 
And as it relates to your attention, what environmental influences do you, do I, open ourselves up to? I think that's the question that's causing us. What are the environments that we tend to put ourselves in, where we allow our environment to influence in those ways? And then, not only that, he's going to say that the blessed person is, uh, they're careful where they walk, they're careful where they stand, but then here's the last thing, it's going to say they're also careful where they sit, where they sit. Now, the term sit in the Hebrew literally means to dwell, it means to abide, or it means to remain somewhere. Uh, In Semitic language, to sit with a group of people, and some of you guys know this, like back in these times, if you, were to, if you were to eat, if you were to sit down and eat with a certain group of people, that was your way of identifying yourself with that group of people. You were saying, I belong here. And the question that that's supposed to cause us to ask is, where do you belong? Right? Where do you belong? What is home base for your mind and for your heart and for your relationships? So what is the psalmist getting at? I think here's what the psalmist is saying. The blessed person is aware of who and what is most influencing them. They're aware of those things. The blessed person is aware of what it is that they're associating themselves with and what it is that they are allowing to shape them, right? And I want you to notice in verse one, it's gonna say there's three things the blessed person doesn't do, but then it's gonna say in verse two, there's two things the blessed person does do. And what, what is that? Well, verse two is gonna say that the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord and they meditate on it day and night. So what do they do? They delight and they meditate. They delight and they meditate. Or in other words, if I could put it this way, in my own words, the blessed person is someone who their mind and their heart is occupied. It's occupied with something. It's already occupied, preoccupied with something. And what is it preoccupied with? Well, they delight and they meditate on the law of the Lord. Now, I know for some of you who are here, when you see the law of the Lord, you might be thinking, oh, I know what that is, right? That's talking about the Bible. That's what that's talking about. And maybe more specifically, you might be thinking that's talking about the laws or the rule parts, like the the, the part of the Bible where the rules are. And so the blessed person is a person who knows the Bible really well and knows the rules of the Bible. That's what that's saying, right? And let me just kind of help clarify, when, when the psalmist says this, What he has in mind is far more than just someone who is aware of the laws that are in the Bible. This is a person, when the Bible says the law of the Lord, this is talking about a person who is committed to pursuing the way of life that God desires. This is talking about a person who is pursuing God's vision for life, for all of life, that is revealed to us in the Bible. So this is not just someone who knows facts about the Bible. This is someone who is committed to living out God's way that he desires. And the Bible's gonna say that this person is a person who delights and meditates day and night. In other words, meaning what? This is an ongoing, regular investment of time and of energy. And then the Bible's gonna say this. It's gonna say that this person, it gives us a great word picture. It says that this person is like a tree who's planted by streams of water that no matter what the environmental and weather patterns and circumstances surround it, that it's always going to be plugged into something, that it's always going to find nourishment from something, that no matter what's happening circumstantially, there's something deeper happening because of what it is rooted in. And here's, I think you guys get the impression, here's what the psalmist is trying to help us think about. He is trying to help us think about this. What is it that you are most rooted in? What are you most rooted in? Or if I could put it this way, 
Where do you spend the bulk of your time and your attention, and what do you allow to most influence you? Because what the psalmist is going to say is the things that you're the most rooted in and the things that you allow into you, the things you allow to influence you, are going to impact how you think, and that's going to impact the actions of your life, the fruit that comes out of your life. And you guys, this is why I believe it's so important that we have this conversation about Jesus over my time. We're asking the question, what does it look like to pursue the blessed life that Psalm chapter one is talking about, where Jesus is first in these priorities as I'm pursuing them. And so that's why we're gonna talk about how we spend our time, how we spend our attention, how we spend our priorities, because according to Psalms, those things really matter. But you guys, I wanna say this, that for the rest of the time that we have here today, I actually just wanna talk about one practical application to this that I think is very specific, very specific, and is actually deeply personal. So if you guys are okay with me getting a little bit personal, I wanna talk about something in, in your life and my life that is deeply specific and deeply personal as it relates to this topic of Jesus over my time. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. What if I were to tell you here today, what if I were to tell you that I believe that there is something in our life, your life and my life, uniquely right now, there's something in your life right now, there's something in my life, my life right now that has the dangerous potential to distract us from the fullness of life that God desires? What if I told you I think that there's something in your life and in my life right now that has the dangerous potential to deter us from the God-given responsibilities we have? What if I told you I believe there's, a, there's something in your life and in my life right now, uniquely, that has the dangerous potential to deprive us of the rich relationships that God has created us for and to diminish our ability to mature socially and to, and to love selflessly as God desires for us? What if I told you that I think that there's something that has a dangerous potential to steal those things from you? My guess is you'd wanna know what that is. And some of you might know what it is that I wanna talk to you about. So for a moment today, I wanna talk to you, I wanna talk to me about our relationship with this. I wanna talk to you about our relationship with screens. Now, hold on a minute, okay? So I know that when I say that, um, some of you immediately feel a sense that this is gonna be a guilt trip. And I've just, I just wanna tell you, that's not what this is, okay? This message is not a guilt trip. And I think for a lot of us, when people talk to us about screens, we just immediately feel this sense of guilt. And that's not what today is. But can I just say, you guys, isn't it fascinating though? Isn't it fascinating that for so many of us, when I say to you, I wanna talk to you about your relationship with your phone. I wanna talk to you about your relationship with screens. For so many of us, we immediately feel like there's something wrong with that relationship. Is that interesting? I think for a lot of us, when I say, I wanna to talk to you about your relationship with your phone, for a lot of you, you feel the same way I do when my dentist says, I wanna ask you about your flossing, right? And I'm like, like, can we talk about something else? And like, I can explain myself. And so, so let me just be super clear. This is not a guilt trip, no guilt trip. Today is about, it's about giving you information so that you can make informed decisions so that we can live the blessed life that God desires for us. That's what today is all about. Because here's what all of us know, and all of us know this. Over the past 15, 20, 30 years, there have been these seismic shifts in the atmosphere of our society as it relates to technology. I mean, you guys know this, but just, just to frame it up, just think about this with me, you guys. In the mid-90s, in the mid-90s, there were 600 websites total. And some of you are like, I visit 600 websites a day, right? <laughs> Today, there are over 1.1 billion 
websites. And you guys, for, for us, that has happened in the span of our lifetime and even of the lifetime of the youngest among us. We have experienced this shift. Think about this, you guys. This is crazy to me. In 1998 is when Google invented. In 1998 is when Google was released. Before 1998, nobody ever Googled anything. And if you said, if you asked someone to Google something, it would sound weirdly inappropriate. Like you couldn't say that to somebody, right? Because think about this. This is a little bit mind-blowing. In 2004 is when social media was popularized by MySpace. You guys remember MySpace? That thing was crazy. But before that introduced us to this whole new world of social media. And then after that, of course, Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and everything else that came along, Snapchat, all that came after uh, those things. So our life was changed in 2004. In 2007 is when the first iPhone came out. And of course, the iPhone wasn't the first smartphone, but it was the smartphone that popularized the smartphone. And after that, a whole new normal became our reality. It's crazy to think, you guys, the iPhone is going to turn 15 in June. And think about that. Over Just 15 years ago, what is normal to us today wasn't even a reality as we've experienced it. And it's crazy for me to think about that. That's just over a period of 15, 20, 30 years. And it makes you wonder, what is the next 15, 20, or 30 years going to hold? I was just thinking about this. I was listening to an interview just this last week, and they were talking about ChatGPT. And some of you guys know ChatGPT uh, was made uh, was made public in November of 2022, free to the public. And uh, in this interview, these tech experts were saying that this is the biggest leap forward in technology since the Industrial Revolution. Which, which, what I'm saying, there's a whole bunch more that's probably coming. And let me be the first one to say it, you guys. All this stuff here that I'm talking about, I think it's amazing. I actually think some of this is really, really fantastic. Uh, some of this has made our lives so much easier. And so I want, you, I want you to be, I want you to understand here, I'm the first one to say this. I want you to hear me say this. I'm not saying that these things are evil or they are bad and that we all just need to renounce these things and go Amish. That's not what I'm saying. Right? That's not it at all. In fact, I'll be honest with you guys. Just be honest. I don't personally, I don't miss these. You guys remember these? So if you're younger in this room, this is an encyclopedia. That's what this is. And uh, it's funny. Uh, this encyclopedia, this exact set my grandparents had, when I saw this picture, I could smell it. I was like, I can smell it. I know what it smells like. Right? I don't miss, I don't know about you guys, I don't miss this. I don't miss this. I don't miss CD cases. I don't miss that, right? It's awesome to be able to have all that on our phone. I, I don't know about you guys, but I am so grateful that we live in a world right now where we can connect to literally hundreds of people in an instant. If there's a need, if there's something that we can surround, we can do that quickly. Pastor Steve was just talking about this team in Turkey, and we found out that this young girl had lost her passport. We were able to mobilize the church to pray for her immediately. I am so grateful for those things. So technology is not a bad thing. This message couldn't even be made possible the way it is without technology. Some of you are watching online on a screen, me who's preaching with the screen. And so I, clearly, clearly, I don't necessarily think that it's an evil thing. But here's the thing. I think all of us need to acknowledge that there are truly some spiritual traps. With all the things that make te technology so amazing, there are some spiritual traps that come along with it. And we need to be informed about those traps, that we can make informed decisions, that we don't miss out on the blessed life that God desires. And so I think we need to be informed that screens have the dangerous potential to distract us from the fullness of life that God desires for us and to deter us from the responsibilities that God has entrusted to us. My guess is I probably don't need to spend a lot of time building a strong case on this. You probably would find yourself agreeing with me 
But the truth is that we are, our, our technology and our screens have an incredible weight of distracting us, of drawing our attention. Uh, our screens are curated and created, and there's monetary incentive for these things to draw our attention. Right? They're, they're, and it's, it's wonderful at doing this. Um, interestingly, just to give you a paraphrase from a guy named Nicholas Carr. Nicholas Carr uh, is actually an expert in this. Here's the way he said it, and I thought this was just really well put. He said, imagine combining a mailbox, a newspaper, a TV, a radio, a photo collection, a music collection, a public library, and an aggressive party attended by everyone you know, and then pressing it into one single small glowing object. And that is what our smartphone represents to us. No wonder we can't take our minds off of it. Once he framed it that way, I thought, man, that is right. Or I like the way Dimitri Martin puts it. Dimitri Martin is a comedian. He said, uh, calling a smartphone a phone is like calling a car a cup holder. And it's true, right? For a lot of us, the phone, our phone is an app on our phone. It's the app that we use the least. And all I'm saying is this device is created to grab our attention and it's very effective at doing so. There's a fantastic book out there right now. It's called The Common Rule. I actually would highly recommend this book to you. And in this book, Justin Early, the author, he said this. He said, attention is our, precise, is our precious commodity. Our life is defined by what we pay attention to. Which, by the way, let me just pause there. I think what he said there is exactly what the psalmist said, that what we pay attention to is what defines us the most. And then he goes on, he says, this means that our life is defined by which of the many cries for our attention we heed. So he goes on, he says, this is the core struggle of the smartphone. It's amazing because it allows us to communicate our presence across time and space, but it's also dangerous for the very same reason. It can fracture our presence across time and space until there's nothing left. And here's the truth, that while we're more connected than ever, we're less present than we've ever been. We're more fragmented in our relationships. We're never fully present in anything because this thing has a way of dragging our attention away from the immediate things that are around us. Oh, this is interesting. Did you guys know uh, that the average person, so this is according to 12 ways your phone is changing you, the average person checks their phone once every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives, which means that we check our phones on average about 81,000 times a year. For the vast majority of us, a screen is the last thing that we look at before bed, whether it's our phone or a television, and it's the first thing that we look at in the morning. And it has a way of just driving our attention, taking our attention and distracting us in different ways. I actually thought this was interesting. In this book, they just talked about email, just email. And here's what they said. The average person receives an email every five minutes in the midst of whatever else that they're doing. The problem is that it takes an average of 64 seconds to resume the previous task after you finish, which means that because of email alone, we typically waste one out of every six minutes in transition back to the previous task. It is distracting us and it is deterring us. In fact, can I just ask you guys this question? And this is moment of honesty, it's church, so no, no judgment here, okay, no judgment. How many of you would say that since this message began, you have checked an email, you have checked a social media notification, or you've looked up something different on the web? How many of you guys would admit to doing that in this? Okay, some of you guys. Now let me ask, let's get a little more honest. Um, the per, how many of you would say the person next to you has done that? And of course, okay, there's the truth. There's the truth, right? No, and I'll tell you what's funny. You guys, this, this is so funny. Last night, at last night's service, I asked that question, and I had to admit that I had looked at, and they're like, when? And I was like, when I got my phone out and I held it up, I saw a notification. <laughs> and, I and I'm preaching. 
And I was like, it's just, I was just saying, these things are excellent at stealing our attention. And how is it impacting us? Well, this is no surprise to you guys. I think we've all seen stuff like this. Jean Twenge, so she, she actually is a, a, a psychologist who studies specific, she's specifically, she studies adolescents and teenagers. And here's what, she, here's what she said about how it's impacting us. Adolescents who spend more than seven hours a day on screens were twice as likely as those spending one hour to have been diagnosed with anxiety or depression. There's a direct correlation between these things. She's gonna go on, teens who are the most active on social media are also those who are most in danger of developing depression. And so studies are finding over and over again that this is having a real impact on us. And I know some of you might be thinking at this point in the message, some of you are thinking, yeah, you see that right there? That's the problem. It's these kids, it's these teenagers. <laughs> and this next generation, you know, they're, they're the problem. They, when I grew up, it wasn't like that. And this generation really needs to learn how to get a grip on technology. But you guys I think we gotta be really honest. It's not just the next generation that's affected by this, it's all of us. No, all, most of the studies are done on the next generation, but it has to be impacting all of us. I thought this was fascinating. Um, the Common Sense uh, Census came out with this, and they actually broke this down. They said uh, by age group, and they started to correlate recreational screen time. So let me just clarify, recreational screen time is not work-related or school-related. This is, this is amount of time on screens and your free time. So a lot of us work on screens. That's not what this is talking about. And here's what they found. They said that on average, kids that are between the ages of eight and 12 spend over four and a half hours a day on screens. So that would be phones, televisions, video games, all right? Between the ages of 13 and 18, teenagers spend over six and a half hours on recreational screen time. And get this, parents and adults over seven and a half hours of recreational screen time. And I think what this is telling us, once again, is that, listen, there is, there is something that has the dangerous potential of distracting us and deterring us from each other and the things that God has entrusted to us. Which actually brings me to the second thing that I want to bring up, and it's these. Screens have dangerous potential to deprive us of the rich relationships for which God has created us. And it also has the dangerous potential to diminish our ability to mature socially and to love selflessly as God desires for us. And that's true. You know, in Psalm 1, we actually talked about this. The psalmist is gonna say that the blessed person is someone who delights and meditates on the law of the Lord, is what it says. And I explained to you that the law of the Lord is actually talking about God's vision for life as is revealed to us in the Bible, that this is a person who is really pursuing the vision that God has for them in their life. And if you guys ever look through the scripture, what you're gonna see is that one of the things that God desires for our life, part of his vision for our life, involves deep and meaningful relationships with each other. We were created for community. And Jesus died and Jesus gave his spirit so that we could experience community with each other. If you guys um, have been part of our church for any length of time, you know we talk about this so often. We talk about it so often. But according to scripture, I think what you're gonna see, you guys, is we are never intended to follow Jesus alone. It's never supposed to be a solo activity. We are supposed to follow Christ in community with other people. We are created for relationships. We talk about this all the time. Some of you guys maybe have heard this. Did you know in the New Testament, there are approximately 60 one another commandments that we are given that are impossible to be lived out without other people in meaningful relationships. Things like this, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another. Things like this, encourage one another daily. 
so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These things are impossible to be obeyed outside of meaningful relationships. And yet what we're seeing is that more and more technology is stealing our ability to connect with each other. Now, you guys have probably heard all kinds of stats on this, but let me just give you some summaries. So for example, one of the things that they found, uh, there was a, a woman named Sherry Turkle. She did an extensive study on this. Spending more time on social media directly correlates with a measurable loss of empathy. The more time we spend on social media, the less empathetic we become. We become desensitized in so many ways. Or what about this one? A 2017 study found that increased use of social media is related to higher levels of narcissism. The more we interact with social media, the more selfish we become, the more self-absorbed and narcissistic we become. Or what about this one? Um, using screens more often can increase our tendency to avoid negative feelings or challenging responsibilities. So there's all these studies that are saying that now we have a, we have, whenever we feel like we are in, we're experiencing a negative emotion or we find ourselves in an awkward situation, that we are more and more avoiding that by going to our screens. Uh, I, I think it might've been, um, I don't remember how many years ago this was, but there was a, a really fascinating documentary that came out called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you guys saw this. I, I think it's worth checking out. If you get a chance, you should check it out, um, <laughs> though it'll, it'll require you being on screens more. Uh, but it's, uh, it's really fascinating. But in The Social Dilemma, they actually interview uh, some of the people who are behind the big tech companies and social media organizations. And they interviewed this guy named Tristan Harris, who worked for Google. And here's what he said. He said, we're training and we're conditioning a whole new generation of people that when we are uncomfortable or lonely or uncertain or afraid, we have a digital pacifier for ourselves that's kind of atrophying our ability to deal with those feelings. Have you guys ever noticed this? We're not really good at being bored anymore. We're not really good at that. If there's feelings that we are so, we're in a social situation where it feels socially awkward, where there's a conversational lag, we have a digital pacifier. And I can just tell you, I see this in myself. Have you guys ever been in public by yourself and you're standing there and you don't have anyone to talk to? And what do you do? You're like, immediately you're like, I don't, I feel like a creepy guy without a phone. And so you're like, I gotta get this thing. And like, and immediately I'm like, oh, look at my, and I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm looking for. I have nothing to look up right now. It's a pass, we're pacifying ourselves. You know, it's fascinating. Actually, right now, sociologists are trying to, um, they're trying to, uh, to make it an official label that of something that they're calling right now, and I'm not making this up, they call it nomophobia. They're trying to make it an official uh, 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 disorder that people have. And nomophobia is basically this. It is the fear and anxiety you feel when your phone is not near you or when your phone is running low on battery. You guys ever feel that before? Like, well, where's my phone at? You know, that's like... It's that it happens sometimes. And so um, how about this one? Exposure to internet pornography at an earlier age diminishes our capability of real intimacy with real partners. You guys, we don't even have time to start opening the conversation about the dangers that come along with internet pornography and the effects that it's having on us. It's a whole other message for a whole other time. But what they're saying, studies are showing that the earlier we're, we're exposed to and the, the more exposure we have to pornography, at the less capable of real intimacy and real relationships that we are able to experience with each other. And I'll tell you what's also disheartening. Did you guys know the average age that a child gets a phone in our country right now is 10? The average age that a child experiences hardcore pornography online is 11. And did you guys know that right now, 20 to 30% of all online pornography viewing is done by children? I'm telling you, that should, that should cause us to 
think a little bit about, about how this is impacting us. I'll tell you, I hate pornography. I hate it. And I don't, I don't hate it because I hate those of us who struggle with it. That's not what I'm saying. I hate it because I hate what it steals from us. It steals us from each other. It steals you from us and, and us from you. And I, I think that it's robbing us of the things that God deeply desires for us. So yes, there's so much more we can say. And I know that you yourself probably tell me articles that you've read and studies that you've seen. But here's the big question. With all of this in mind, practically speaking, how do we live a Jesus over my screen life? How do we live a life where Jesus is first in this area of our life? And you guys, can I just tell you, I think that in light of all of this, we need four things. I think there's four things that we need. Here's the first one. I think what we need is we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Uh, whenever there's an area of our life that's not black and white, it's not just like 100% evil or 100% good, but there's some gray. And like I said, technology would be one of those things. I think what we need to navigate that is we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Um, I, I, love, I love what the Apostle Paul said in the book of uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He said this, he said, I have the right to do anything, you say. Yeah, but not everything's beneficial. And then he said, I have the right to do anything, you say. Yeah, but I won't be mastered by anything. What the Apostle Paul is saying, I believe, is this. He's saying that just because something isn't evil doesn't mean it's beneficial. And just because something isn't sinful doesn't mean we should be aware of the effects that it's having on us. I think that's what he's saying. And because of that, I think what we need is wisdom. For those of us who follow Jesus, and I know that's not everybody. Some of you are still investigating Jesus. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we have claimed allegiance to one master, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we need to be very careful about opening ourselves to other things that is gonna compete for that affection and for that allegiance. So we need wisdom. I love what Psalms says, the book of Psalms, Psalm 90. It says, teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. The Bible is going to say one of the ways that we gain wisdom is by being very aware of our time and how we're spending our time. Our days are, are numbered. Our time is brief. And I don't know about you guys, but I was just thinking about this. I do not want to get to the end of my life and look back and say that I spent over seven hours a day in recreational use on a screen. I don't want to spend my life that way. My guess is you probably don't want that to be the story of your life either. And I think that it's going to take wisdom for us to know how to navigate in a time like this where we're not building our lives on sinking sand. And I mean that quite literally. You guys think about it. In this little device, every little tiny circuit is made of silicon, which is sand. And that's, that, that's, that's danger that's there. And so we need wisdom. We need wisdom. I think the second thing is this. Wisdom is going to tell us we need a plan. I think wisdom is going to say, you need a plan. You need a plan. And just like anything else in life, if there is something that is potentially a powerful tool, but also potentially a powerful danger, if there's something that has the ability to be a very, very powerful tool or to be a dangerous weapon, what you need around that is you need boundaries and you need limits, right? If you have a gun, you get a gun safe. If you have a knife, you get a knife block in your kitchen to put that in. Why? Because while it is a powerful tool, it also can be dangerous to you and to the people that you love. And so in the same way, I think as it relates to screens, we need boundaries. We need limits. I don't know if you feel this way. I'll tell you, I feel this way. I'm like, I need this. I need this. I'll be the first one to admit to you guys, preaching this sermon and preparing for this was very painful for me because I'm like, I am preaching 100% to myself. I need this. I need these things. And so we need limits and we need boundaries. And so the question is, what kind of plan, where do we start when we're looking to make a plan? Well, fortunately, 
you guys, there is a lot that's already out there, a lot of great plans that you can adopt. And if I could just point you, I, I could point you in a lot of different places, but can I just point you to four great resources? So I'm just gonna recommend these to you. If you wanna screenshot these, you can, I'll talk about them. Just make sure you get me in the picture. I'll get it there. All right, good. Okay, so, so stupid. Uh, so let me explain these ones to you real quick. Okay, so the TechWise family, very simple, very easy read, super practical. It's obviously for families. If you're trying to navigate what does technology usage look like in your family, that's great. TechWise Life, more personal, but very practical. Um, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You is a little bit of a deeper dive. It gets more into stats and figures and the effects, psychological and sociological studies, but it's excellent, excellent, excellent. And then I would have to say, just in my personal recommendation, I think this is the best of all of them, the common rule, fantastic and very, very, very practical. And I would just encourage you, maybe pick up one of those. It's a really good starting place. If you're someone who's like, I don't really have time to read a whole book on something like that, my encouragement is this, go to ChatGPT and ask it to write a summary of the book for you. I'm telling you, use technology to your advantage and it will, it will do those things for you. But if I could just give you, obviously these all have really great practical steps, but if I could just give you a few, just for the sake of our talk here, here's a few things that you're gonna find consistently across the board. All of them are gonna say this. They're gonna say you should start by tracking it. I think part of making a plan is that you have to track it. Track your screen use time. You know, it's the same thing if you wanna get control of your diet, if you want to get control of your budget, you have to track it. Track your, track your, you know, your calories, track your macros, track your, your budget, every penny that you spend. That helps you determine reality. And luckily, we live in a society right now where technology makes it very easy. Screen time will track itself for you. But I think that helps you get a picture of what the reality really is. Because sometimes we might not feel like something is an issue. And then when you track it, you realize it really is. Right? So track it. That's a really good first step. Here's one, limit it. Everyone's gonna say, you have to put some limits on this. You have to put some limits. Here's a good starting place. If you currently right now would say that there is no intentional space or time where this does not have access to you or that there's not a screen that is not in front of you, I think that's a good starting place. It's just create some limits on it. Now, you're like, how much time is too much time? And I, I don't really know the answer to those questions. But can I tell you this? I thought this was helpful personally. According to just about every study that I looked at, they would say that anything over two hours a day of recreational screen time is when you start to see the negative effects set in. So they talk about anxiety and depression and loss of empathy. A lot of those studies would say anything north of two hours of recreational use a day. I thought that was really helpful. It's a helpful thing. But I think we need to limit it. We need to consider those things. Here's one. For those of us who follow Jesus, I think this is a really important rule. Scripture before screens. Scripture before screens. Um, I think I have told you guys this before. One of the most helpful habits that I've ever put in my life is that I've kind of made this habit, and I'm not perfect at it, but the habit is that I want to spend my first cup of coffee with Jesus. I want to spend my first cup of coffee before I look at anything, an email screen. I want to, I want to get in God's word. And the reason that I, I think this is such an important habit, you guys, is we can't ignore what the psalmist says. The psalmist says that the blessed person is someone who meditates on the things of God. They meditate. Now, the word meditate, I know for a lot of us, when we hear that, we tend to think of like this idea of emptying our mind. That's what we think of. But that is not what the scripture means when it says meditate. In, in the Bible, meditation is the idea of filling your mind, 
It's filling your mind with the things of God. I heard one commentator say it this way. They said the Hebrew idea of meditating, they said the, the word picture that should come to your mind is it's like a cow chewing its cud. Did you guys ever see a cow do this? I don't know much about cows, but they, they eat grass or whatever, and then they chew it, right? They sit there and they say that weird jaw thing that goes on. And then apparently they swallow it and they have like, what is it, like four stomach chambers or something like that. And so it'll go down into one stomach chamber and then they burp it back up again. They chew it again. And they get it back down again. They just sit and it burp, comes back up again. This happens four times. What are they doing? They're regurgitating. They're getting every nutrient out of that grass. And listen, if you guys can get that, that picture in your mind, maybe you don't want that picture in your mind. Um, the Bible's gonna say, hey, that's how, we should, that's how we should interact with the Bible, is that we're thinking about it. You know, I think honestly, sometimes the reason we find ourselves not delighting in the law of the Lord is because we don't meditate on it. Here's the question I think it should cause us to ask. Where do we dwell and where do we dabble? And my fear is for most of us who follow Jesus, we dabble in the Bible, we dabble in community, but we dwell on social media or we dwell on ESPN or we dwell on our newsfeed, whichever your channel of whatever that might be. And I think what this is saying is the blessed person is careful where they walk, where they stand and where they sit. And so I think that's a big one. Here, here's one more. I think we should practice social presence, practice being socially present, maybe having strategic times where your phone is in another room during meal times, practicing looking your spouse in the eyes or your children in the eyes. I thought this was a good one. This is so practical. This is great. I had a friend tell me that when he goes out uh, to dinner, that him and his friends will take their phones and they'll put them in the middle of the table in a pile. And the first one to touch their phone has to pay for the meal. I thought that is awesome. I would win that game. I am, so, I am so cheap. I'm like, no way, right? So, but it's just a helpful, helpful stuff. There are a million things like that. Here's the truth. We will probably never will have a perfect plan, but an imperfect plan is better than no plan. I think that's good. So we need a plan. Here's the third thing. We need others. We need each other. I think this whole conversation makes the most sense when you can dialogue about this in Christian community. Talk about it with your life group. Have someone else hold you accountable. If you're meeting with someone for discipleship, make this a part of that time. I think it's really important. Can I just say this? If you're a parent, this is a critical conversation to be having with your children. Critical, critical, critical. This is my opinion, just my opinion on this, but I think that handing a smartphone with no boundaries and limitations to a, to a kid or a teenager is like handing them a loaded weapon. I have to be very cautious. I think that there's some considerations. And I think, honestly, you guys, I think a lot of us need help here. And let me just say this. If you're a parent who's in this room, um, I, I want to actually let you know, this might be short notice, but tonight, there's actually, if you have a middle school student, there's a middle school connect that's happening here. Middle school students will meet for small group and parents are going to get together to talk about technology and about how to navigate through this age of technology. You're more than invited to come to that. I'd love for you to be there. I think it's at 6.30, but I could be wrong. You might want to check the website, but it's right here and we'd love for you to be there. So we need each other. And here's the last thing. With this, I'm going to invite the band to come up. You guys, we need more than anything, we need God's help. We just need God's help with this. Um, like I said, and I hope you guys are hearing me, I hope you don't walk out and say, Pastor Tony said it's bad to have screens. That's not what I said, all right? They're not bad. They're not evil. But we need wisdom. And honestly, I think here's the reality. The reality is that the, the potential danger that comes with these, the darkness does not lie within this. 
and, and the evil and, and, and those things don't lie within this. It's not within the device. Here's what I believe, you guys, and this, this, I, this I believe is all throughout scripture. I think the darkness doesn't lie in here. I think the darkness lies in here. It lies in our heart. And the smartphone and the screens that we have, these are simply amplifiers of the desires that already exist in our heart. And so if I have a desire in my heart that craves and seeks the approval of people, that that's where I find my identity, like so many of us have, this can be a very dangerous device because it's an amplifier to what already exists in my heart. It's like throwing fuel on that fire. For some of us, we have an inclination in our heart. We have a desire towards lust, towards engaging in sexuality that's outside of God's good parameters. And if that exists in your heart and my heart, this is just an amplifier to that desire. It's like throwing fuel on that fire. For some of us, we have an inclination already towards gossip. We have an inclination already towards the love of money. This just becomes an amplifier of what's inside of us. And for that reason, here's the truth. There is no plan that can, that can minimize what exists in our own heart. There's only one thing that can transform the human heart, that can change our desires. There's only one person who can do that. It's the person in Jesus Christ. And we have to come to him and ask him to reorder us from the inside out. And so my hope and our prayer is that we would come to God over and over again and ask him to help us. And that's actually what I wanna invite you to do with me right now as we close our service. Let's go to God right now and let's ask him to help us in this area of our life. Well, Jesus, we wanna to come to you and we wanna say thank you that you are first above all things. And because you're first in all things, we wanna order our lives around the firstness of you in this area of our life, this very practical and relevant area of our screens. The truth is it's the air that we breathe and you know that God. We wanna say thank you for the incredible technology we have access to. We realize the inventiveness and the creativity that we see is a reflection of the fact that we were created in your image. And we're thankful for those things. We're thankful for the way that we can be more connected with each other. We're thankful for the way it makes our lives easier to navigate in some ways. But at the same time, God, we realize there is a dangerous potential that this might steal away from us the blessed life that you want for us. So we come to you, Jesus, we wanna ask you for help. We ask you that you would give us wisdom, give us wisdom to navigate this. The scripture says that if we lack it, we should ask you, so we're asking you. Lord, give wisdom to those who are, par- who are parenting through this. It's so hard, and there's just an ever-changing landscape, and I pray that you would give us incredible grace and wisdom in that. Pray for the next generation. Lord, we ask that they would be a wise generation that loves you, and that this is an area that, they, that they're able to serve you, that you are above this in their life, God. So Jesus, I pray that as we get a chance to worship and sing, that these lyrics that we're singing, that they would be reflections of our prayers to you corporately together, that we'd worship you and love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.